what I want to try to do today in our time together, and I think I've got one session now and then a lot more time this afternoon, um, but what we're going to try to do is think together about um, what it means to be faithful and effective missionaries for the gospel in the culture and, and time that we live in, okay? So I want to start with a little parable, not from Jesus, but from uh, the late American writer, David Foster Wallace. Uh, he once told this parable um, to some students. It goes like this. Two young fish are swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way. The older fish nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit. And then eventually one of them looks over at the other and says, What the hell is water? Um, the point of the parable is obvious, right? Um, to some extent, all of us are unaware of the context that we are in. We're so immersed in the world we live in and the culture that we live in that it doesn't even register with us. It's, you know, it's the whole point of the, the, the cliche of a fish out of water. The idea is water is the natural environment for fish, and it doesn't realize that it's in the water. And so what I want to try to do uh, today in our time is to just help you become more aware of the water and then think about what does it mean for us um, to, to live as faithful witnesses of Jesus in that water that we swim in. Um, a lot of what we do today uh, is going to be cultural analysis. I'm going to help give you some tools and some handles to think about your relationship to culture. So it will connect most of all to the modules on, for instance, evangelism and apologetics. Um, but more importantly, what we're going to do today is just about us being able to faithfully honor Jesus Christ. Right, like we're here to worship Christ, to make disciples of Christ, and to be faithful churches that represent Him and that preach His gospel in the world. And so, really, everything we're going to talk about, though, is sort of analysis of culture and the world that we live in. All of that is aimed at helping us live as faithful witnesses for Jesus. All right, so let's not lose sight of. Sometimes I like thinking about culture, and it can be fun to sort of diagnose and think about the things that revolve in the world around us. But the reason that stuff matters is simply because the mission God has given us matters and the glory of Christ matters, okay? All right, so let me ask you uh, to shout out something to me. Uh, let's say that I gave you a map, and I'm not from here, so I, I know what the quad cities are, but I don't know much about sort of like how they have developed and what the geography and history is. But let's say I gave you a map of the quad cities from 1983, all right? So 40 years ago. Uh, what would that map not include, that is here now, that would not have been there in 1983? Okay, good. New Bridge. 53rd Avenue. Vibrant Center, okay? Just those three things? Most of Bettendorf. Yeah, somebody said that last time I was here, too. It's like, actually, that whole town would have sort of not really existed on the map as much. Okay, good. What else? Okay. Sacred City. Yeah, sure. That might, that's, might still not exist on the map. We had this uh, conference at Quorum Deo this week, and it, the, the Uber kept bringing up the wrong address, so we had like seven people end up at the wrong part of the city because, you know, we are all dependent on technology now. What else were you going to say? Okay, no riverboats. The, 
you, you see the point of the exercise, right? That maps are a snapshot of a city in a given moment, but as cities continue to be developed and as geography continues to be added and as new neighborhoods are built and new developments and new streets, the maps have to be updated, right? And so a map from 1983 would be actually really adequate for a lot of your travel around the Quad Cities. And then there's a few places where you would get lost or where, where it would not accurately reflect uh, how things are now, okay? So I want you to think about that as a metaphor for what it means for us to live as Christians in a post-Christian society or a post-Christian world, okay? It's not totally foreign. In many ways, the maps that served the church well in 1983 or 1963 or 1923 will still work fine. Like some things are still very much recognizably the same. But also there are new parts, new areas, new things on the map that if we're not aware of them, we'll get lost, okay? And that's a good um, analogy for what it means to sort of be a missionary theologian. We want to update the map of Christian discipleship to reflect accurately the context in which we are making disciples, right? So I want you guys to um, take that analogy of, of a map that needs to be updated or that needs to accurately reflect the terrain. And I want you to tell me, uh, what, are, what do you think, in your opinion, are some of the realities of living in a post-Christian world that, or, or issues or challenges that are, that are new for us that would not have been the same for your grandparents? Okay, so if you're thinking about what are some of the u- new, unique things we are facing in the world that would not have been the same challenges or problems or questions in your grandparents' era? Social media, very good. Global connectivity, excellent. Gender, yeah, gender, sexuality, good. Yeah, individualism. And the, and the particular shape that it takes from generation to generation. Absolute truth, what do you mean? Okay. We don't hold it the same way now as we did then. Okay, good. Okay, presuppositions would have changed what we take for granted. Good. Access to information. Yeah, you said social media, but I actually think like the whole world of technology, artificial intelligence, all of that is vastly different and rapidly changing and sets up a whole new context for us that's different from our grandparents. Okay, language, good. Racism, good. Okay, good. Yeah, so the way schools are is real different now than it was in my grandparents' era. These are the kinds of things then that I want to help us think about. Basically, what I'm trying to help us do is how do we update our maps? How do we think uh, intelligently and creatively about the world that we live in and the ways that it's different from what the church would have needed to engage 50 years ago or 100 years ago, okay? I want to um, introduce you to a concept that you may be familiar with from Leslie Newbegin. I can't remember if this this may be talked about in the Porterbrook material, but it's the concept of plausibility structure. Leslie Newbegin was a a British missionary um, who lived, who went and served in India for most of his life and then retired and came back to England and realized that while he was gone, things had changed dramatically in England, and so he was one of the early voices encouraging the church in Western culture 
to have a missionary posture, to think more like missionaries about culture that seems familiar to us. And one of the things New Begin worked out was this idea that every culture has a plausibility structure to it. In other words, certain things seem plausible and other things seem implausible based on the presupposition and assumptions that we carry with us, right? Um, certain things just make sense to us and other things don't make sense to us, and, that, and the things that make sense are different from culture to culture. So each culture has sort of a different plausibility structure, a different set of assumptions, and, um, and a, a different kind of imagination of what seems credible and what seems not so credible. Um, as you think about that, what do you think are some of the things that shape the plausibility structure of American society right now? What makes something seem credible? Okay, the amount of likes on a social... So underneath that, what you're saying is part of our plausibility structure is um, affirmation. How many people like things? That actually drives a lot of what seems intelligent and credible. The more people that like it, the more it might seem credible. What else? Okay, what do you mean? Okay, good. So, yes, there's... You're saying that, like... It used to be that sort of there was some standard go-to sources for news and information. Now we're in a world where, like, based on where it comes from, we might consider it more plausible or less plausible. That's good. What else? What? Upbringing. So how you're raised shapes what you consider to be plausible. Good. You mentioned, Ben mentioned individualism earlier. I think that's actually part of the plausibility structure in America, right? Like, you know, it's got to be true for me. It's got to make sense to me. I'm not going to believe it just because you say I should or because my grandparents did. What makes something plausible is, does it make sense to me? Does it fit what I'm looking for and the, the, the burden of proof that I feel like needs to be met? What else? Okay, why? Okay, good. There's sort of an assumed plausibility if my tribe thinks it's plausible. That's good. What else? Okay, yeah. There's, a, there's sort of a therapeutic or like a, you know, if it makes me feel right, if I feel good about it, then it's probably plausible. And if it makes me feel bad or I don't like it, then maybe it's less plausible. Okay, good. Um, what are some of the places, let's, let's now move from thinking about our culture to thinking about what makes Christianity seem implausible to your neighbors? What are some of the defeaters or some of the places where the Christian faith might seem implausible to people you know? Not relevant. What, what do you mean by that? Okay. Okay. Great. So Christianity doesn't seem to be a relevant message to them, and so it's not plausible. Good. What else? 
Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So Christianity is an external source of authority, and that really rubs against the sense that I should be able to be my own authority and decide for me, and so that makes it feel implausible to people. What else? Why? Yeah, because just trust the science, right? We all saw how that works so well, right? Trust the science. But you're right, that science, people perceive that because science is now sort of elevated and objective measurement and quantification really matters to people. They, they tend to contrast that with something that's spiritual, religious, not grounded in the hard sciences, okay? So that sometimes can make things feel implausible to people. What else? What else makes Christianity seem implausible to your friends? Yeah, you go. Okay, good. So actually, some of the um, experience people have of Christians can make Christianity seem implausible because they just have had bad experiences with Christians or with the church. That's good. What else? Yeah, so it's not hip and new and the newest, freshest thing. And so um, for some people, the fact that it's old makes it less plausible. That's good. Any other thoughts? I mean, there's a, we could go on forever here. My point is just to help you see that um, everybody around you lives with a set of assumptions of what makes something credible and true and believable. And those assumptions are handed to us by our culture. And you live with a set of those as well. Now, because you've found the gospel credible and believable, maybe there are places where your plausibility structure differs from the people around you, but also you're going to share a lot of things in common. There's a lot of things that just because we're all Americans, we share certain aspects of what makes something plausible, believable, or credible in our minds, all right? So what I want to try to do today, both this morning and this afternoon, is to help us sort of analyze some of the elements in the foundational narratives in our society and trying to make sense of how do we, um, as good missionaries, get down to underneath that plausibility structure and, and in a sense, understand some of the paradigms people have that, are, that we need to deconstruct. So when I think about proclaiming the gospel, it's sort of a work of deconstruction and reconstruction, right? In a sense, we have to challenge some of the things people believe in order to show them that those beliefs actually aren't really consistent. And then we also have to impart to them the good news of the gospel. And that that work is um, different based on what are the reigning plausibility structure, what are the things that people consider credible, and how do we uh, chip away at some of those false beliefs so that it, it allows them then to see the truth and goodness and beauty of the gospel. Okay, So what I want to do this morning... Uh, I think we've got about 30, 35 minutes here this morning. I actually want to um, give you, I want to uh, lay out for you three different models of cultural engagement or three approaches to the question of church and culture, how the church relates to the culture. Um, part of what I want you to do, I, I consider these seminar days as sort of like value added, right? Like you've done all this work in Porterbrook, you've been reading, you've been meeting in cohorts, you've been learning. What I want to try to do is to say, okay, good. I hope you walk away from here today feeling like, oh, I actually have a, a, 
a set of knowledge. I learned some things that I didn't have going in that helps me enter into a conversation more fully. And so what I want to try to do this morning is give you um, three approaches to church and culture. And actually, um, I want to I want to help you enter into a conversation that's been happening for about 70 years, maybe even longer than that, um, but give you the big categories so that you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm intelligent in that conversation. I understand what various people have said about how the church should relate to culture. So the first thing I want to summarize for you is from uh, Richard Niebuhr's book, Christ and Culture. This is a classic work in Christian theology. It came out in 1951, and everybody since then has had to reckon with Niebuhr's categories for how Christ, how the church, relates to culture. And so I want to lay out for you really quickly his five different ways that the church can relate to culture, and I want to ask you to interact with them. So we're going to start there. That's 1951. Then I'm going to give you a second model from 2010. And then a third model from just this year, all right? So let's do, let me lay out for you Niebuhr's Christ and Culture. I'm going to see if I can get a whiteboard marker here that is legible from where you guys are sitting because I realize this room is deep. All right, good. This one will work good. All right. Five models for the church's relationship to culture according to Niebuhr. The first is what he calls christ against culture, okay? In other words, people who hold this point of view um, recognize the sort of radical call of Jesus Christ, especially in, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount. And what they would say is that um, faithfulness to Christ, um, Christ claims our ultimate allegiance, and radical obedience to Christ also requires sort of radical separation from culture, um, the tradition that holds this most deeply is the Anabaptist tradition. The Anabaptist tradition, going back to the Reformation, is like where you get your Mennonites, your Hutterites, um, your Quakers. It's all those sort of pockets of American Christianity. The Amish might be the most extreme example. That's the one that's maybe clearest for us. They're like, okay, I see how that's, you know, not everyone who holds this view would sort of take it in an Amish direction. But you can see how the Amish perspective on culture is, we're committed to this thing, and this we do our thing. We don't even, you know, engage with modern culture. Um, so, uh, Niebuhr says, this perspective affirms the sole authority of Christ over the Christian and rejects the culture's claims to loyalty. Anabaptist traditions is that most of them do not agree with serving in the military. Most of them are pacifists because they value the Sermon on the Mount. And they say, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. And because my allegiance to Christ comes first, I can't have an allegiance to my nation or to its people or to defend it because I'm called to be faithful to Christ. And so most of these people are conscientious objectors to things like serving in the military or even having roles like being a judge uh, in civic society because that's how they, they perceive the call of Christ to require us to be sort of outsiders to the culture, okay? So Christ against culture. Let me ask you guys, um, what do you like about this? What resonates about this? Yeah, I mean, these are people who take Jesus seriously and they're really trying to be faithful to some of his most radical commands. What else? Yeah, it's black. gives you an easy category. Yeah. 
That's all. You guys don't really like this one, do you? I can tell you're not in for this. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, good. Yeah. It saves you from having to ask all the questions about, like, how should we relate and when should we relate and why should we relate. So another word for this is, um, you know, uh, Niebuhr calls these radicals. And radical in, the, in just the sense that means, like, there's a radical antithesis here. It's like you're either on the side of Christ or you're on the side of culture. And so these people sort of have a radical approach to that, okay? So that's the first group, Christ against culture. All right, let me give you the second category that Niebuhr uses. The Christ of culture. The Christ of culture. I'll read you what he means by that. These people feel no great tension between the church and the world. Christ is identified with what men conceive to be their finest ideals, their noblest institutions, their best philosophy. These people, uh, basically, if you want to think about this approach, it's basically baptizing the culture and calling it Christian, okay? So, um, in fact, Brad East says, writing about this, he says, these folks subordinate the teachings of Scripture to the dominant cultural norms of the day. All right, so this is your classic sort of liberal theology approach is, hey, you know what Jesus does is he just takes the best aspects of human culture and baptizes them, and so we don't need to uh, deny ourselves in any way. We can just say, whatever the culture says, let's just slap a cross on that, and we'll call it good. And so you can see all the moves in the sort of liberal stream of theology over the last 200 years in various ways are sort of this approach, the Christ of culture. Another word for this would be accommodationist. So if you want to think about the first group as radicals, this second group is accommodationist. They sort of accommodate the gospel, accommodate the teachings of Jesus to the culture, all right? Now, I assume most of you also maybe don't like this very much, but let's, let's analyze it. What do you, what's, what's unique about this? What's, what's maybe good about this? Okay, why? Okay, good. Yeah, so there, there's really no radical call to obedience, and so it is sort of like very accessible to people. Uh, there's not a whole lot they have to change in order to enter into the church. That's, that's something that makes it sort of attractive to various people. Yeah, it's comfortable. It's progressive in all the ways people love, right? And in fact, as culture progresses, then, you know, we can just keep moving the needle on where the church should go. And so in a sense, um, it does feel comfortable in, in ways that not only non-Christians appreciate, but also lots of Christians feel like, man, the antithesis, the radical call of Jesus, you know, gets softened a little bit, and it feels easier, like Jesus maybe is an easier person to follow. And again, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, that's, you can sort of see how people end up here if what they're trying to do is reach culture and what they feel like is, man, I want to make it as easy as possible for folks to enter into the church and to follow Christ. Okay. Let's go to the third category. Oops. Third category is Christ above culture. Okay. 
Christ above culture. And again, let me read you uh, his definition of what he means by that. The image of Christ standing above culture. Oh, sorry, this is Brad East. This is not Richard Niebuhr himself. The image of Christ standing above culture is meant to connote Christendom. St. Thomas Aquinas is the great theorist here, okay? So this is the classic medieval synthesis. It basically says, um, as we think about Christ and the relationship of the church to culture, we embrace both Christ and culture, but we want to see Christ above culture. And so this approach basically seeks the Christianization of culture, um, not in a way that accommodates the gospel to the culture, but in a way that sees the culture's existence is to witness to and testify to the lordship of Christ. So the, the thing you should think of here as sort of the classic picture of this are the great cathedrals of Europe, right? These are buildings that are built for the worship of God and Christ, but built with public funds and as social institutions given with public resources from the people of the city. Right, And so that's sort of Christ above culture. It's taking, it's expecting the whole culture to sort of represent and come under the lordship of Christ. Whether they are Christians or not, this should be valued in the culture. And so there should be public sort of affirmation of Christ and the church and public support of the church. And again, this was uh, Thomas Aquinas and sort of the medievals were the first to really sort of articulate this. Um, and you can see how it led to much of European Christendom and, uh, and a lot of good here. What do you like about Christ above culture? Good, good. So, yeah, it has this. It's These other two, you can see these other two are sort of like Christ has, does his thing over here and the culture does its thing over here. This one recognizes Christ is Lord of everything. He's not just Lord of the church. He's Lord of the world. Good. Okay, good, yes. Okay, good. What else do you like? Okay, yeah. Keeps the culture relatively stable. In other words, there's, um, there's sort of a consensus of what we sort of embrace and affirm, and so there's a stability to that kind of culture in many ways. It feels less fraught. Anything else? Good. There's an objective standard. Yeah, Christ defines what's good, true, beautiful. So we don't have to fight about it because we've already agreed that it's, it's Christ and his word that defines what's good, true, and beautiful. Um, all right. Here's the fourth, fourth type. Christ and culture in paradox, okay? And this one's a little more sort of um, hard to wrap your mind around, so let me uh, explain what it means, okay? These people frame the problem less as a problem of Christ and culture and more in terms of God and human beings. In other words, uh, these people recognize that when, when God speaks, when God calls to human beings, that's a radical thing. Like there's this radical antithesis between God and his holiness 
in human beings in all of our sinfulness. And so the radical holiness of God and the radical sinfulness of man um, call me as, as an individual to a sort of oscillation. That's the paradox here. On the one hand, I stand with God as a Christian against the sinfulness of humanity. So when it comes to ethical matters, when it comes to what's true and good and beautiful, I stand with God against humanity. And at the same time, I am part of the problem because I stand with humanity as a sinner against God. And so you can see how basically as a Christian, I'm both on the side of God against humanity and I'm on the side of humanity rebelling against God. And um, so this type is represented best by Martin Luther. If you've ever read any of Luther's work, also Kierkegaard, also Karl Barth, um, all three of these characters have this sort of radical sense of what God calls us to, but also this radical sense that even as I align with God in his vision for the world, I also stand as a sinner condemned under his judgment except by grace. And so there's sort of this moving back and forth, this oscillating, this paradox of what does it mean to be a Christian in culture? Well, it's complicated like that, okay? Um, so these people are kind of fighters because they're, they, they really understand. I mean, you could think of Isaiah in, in Isaiah chapter 6, right? Uh, Woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. So there's this sense of Isaiah identifying with the holiness of God and saying God is holy and right and good and also I'm part of the problem here. That's the radical sort of nature of Christ and culture in paradox. All right, the fifth category, or the fifth group, is Christ the transformer of culture, all right? Or Christ transforming culture. All right. This is the one probably that, like, some of you will appreciate because you might put yourself here. Another word for this, according to Niebuhr, is the conversionists. He called these people the conversionists. He puts St. Augustine and John Calvin here. Um, these folks want neither to replace culture nor to leave it alone, but to convert it, to take its antecedent morals and beliefs and transfigure them and yet, what's different from the Christ above culture is that these people are a little more cynical about whether that can happen before the new heavens and the new earth. So the, the Christ above culture people would say, let's seek to make the culture as Christian as possible. The transformationalists would say, our job is to see people transformed and to take where they are in their morals and beliefs and see that transformed by the grace of the gospel. But that's going to remain incomplete, this side of glory, Okay. And so there's an aim toward conversion and transformation in the culture, but more at a person-to-person -person gospel conversion kind of level that then would play out in the culture being transformed, okay? So you might say that the, the Christ above culture works a little more top-down. Let's just, let's just make Christ publicly honored in culture, whether you believe it or not. Transformationalists work a little more bottom-up. Let's preach the gospel and lead people to faith in Christ and then trust that as they do, they will build institutions and shape culture in a way that glorifies Christ, but that that's going to remain incomplete this side of glory. Now, what do you like about that model? Why? 
Okay, good. So it seems there's a little more of a, um, it's not as, as, the scope is not as big. And so it seems sometimes more attainable. And I would say it also can seem attainable in like individual places, right? Like we might be able to say, hey, let's work on that in our town or in our city, even while the country might be, you know, all over the map, but we can work locally for these kinds of things. So that's one reason people like this. What else? Yeah. Okay, why? It can. Okay, good. So yeah, this one is a little more, um, yeah, leaves room for grace is one way to say it, a little more um, pessimistic about the possibility of transformation, and that's good. What else? Yeah. Okay. Yes, that not everyone, you know, you might have a Muslim living down the street from you and they're not going to become a Christian. There's still room for them in this society um, to sort of be who they are and practice their faith in a way that might feel more freeing to them than the Christ above culture. Okay. Okay. Okay, good. So you like it because it's sort of that bottom-up component. We're starting with individuals and then working our way to broader change. Good. Okay, good. Okay. Okay. Good. Now, an interesting figure in this, you know, uh, Niebuhr mentions St. Augustine here. And what's unique about Augustine is he's writing at the fall of the Roman Empire. So, why does Augustine land here, Christ transforming culture? Well, because he's writing in an empire that was polytheistic and pagan that has just fallen apart. And we haven't yet built a Christendom to replace that. And so Augustine is after basically the conversion of Romans to Christianity. And the reason he writes most of his work is to make an apologetic to the Roman people why they should abandon their gods that have their false gods in the first place and become Christians. Okay? So you see how he's kind of working bottom up. The Christ above culture, if that's reflected by Thomas Aquinas, who's 600 years later, you can see how at the height of sort of the medieval empires of Europe, when the Catholic Church is very strong, when Europe is dotted with cathedrals that have been constructed uh, with public funds, you can see why at that moment, with the triumph of Christendom, it seems a little more like it's a Christ above culture kind of moment, right? Now, those of you who teach or who do persuasion, you can ask yourselves the question, why did neighbor put Christ transforming culture last? Probably because he was trying to get us to that one. Now, he doesn't ever sort of take a position, but most people who comment on his work are like, yeah, that's why he put that one last, is because you do all the, all the alternatives first, and then you do the best one last. That's classic persuasion. So I would suspect that, uh, that he is a transformationalist. Um, so this model, these five categories, are foundational in all of um, apologetics and evangelism since 1951. 
as just helpful categories. And you can see how various church traditions map into various places on here. So we mentioned that first one is sort of your Anabaptist tradition. The Christ of culture is sort of your liberal Protestants. Christ above culture, Christendom, is certainly Roman Catholicism, but also maybe magisterial Protestantism. Christ and culture in paradox is sort of the, uh, the existential forms of Christianity and also probably Lutheranism. And then Christ transforming culture, you can see that in the Calvinistic and Reformed tradition. So you can sort of see how all the various sort of church traditions fall mainly in one of these five categories. And this is a really helpful rubric for thinking about how the church engages culture, okay? Now what I want to do is introduce you to a second model or a second set of models from James Davison Hunter, his book, To Change the World, written in 2010. So this is 60 years after Niebuhr. And um, James Davison Hunter is a professor at the University of Virginia, really smart guy, a great student of culture. Um, I'm not going to write these ones up there, um, but I'm going to tell you, he's got four models of cultural engagement. Okay, so he basically, instead of Niebuhr's categories, he wants to say, actually, let me give you a different four categories. Ways of the church engaging culture. James Davison Hunter's first model is what he calls defensive against. The church is defensive against culture. He's going to have two words for each model, so defensive against. This approach seeks to create a defensive enclave that is set against the world. So you might think uh, fundamentalism probably fits here. Sort of the the culture war um, approach is sort of like, hey, we need to create... We need to defend ourselves against a hostile culture and create a protected space or a defended space where we can sort of fight from, all right? So these are sort of the, um, the defensive against posture tends to be sort of, you can see the, the language is a little bit defensive. These folks tend to be fighters, all right? My grandfather definitely falls in this category. My grandfather uh, died in 1986 at the age of 80. So he came of age in the 20s and 30s at the height of sort of the liberal fundamentalist controversies. And he was a crusty fundamentalist. He would fight you all. In fact, if you said, if you opened your Bible and said that Revelation 20 was not talking about a literal thousand years, he would just say, well, then you don't believe the Bible. Like he was just, he was a guy that just, he was so committed to a way of understanding scripture. It was just like, if you don't believe that, you're a heretic. This is the right way. This is what we're fighting for, defending for. He had a little bit of that fighter, fundamentalist spirit in him, okay? So defensive against is one way of engaging culture. Number two, relevance to. You can see how these sort of map on to Niebuhr's first two categories pretty simply, right? Relevance to. Uh, People that believe in relevance to culture uh, make a priority of being connected to the pressing issues of the day. This is the strategy both of the liberal mainline churches and probably also of the seeker movement. Um, The idea is how can we be most relevant, most updated, most connected to what people really want right now? Um, Brad East says, if young people find the trappings of historic institutional Christianity boring or outdated, then the obvious thing to do is to give it a makeover. And that's what the strategy does. How do we just, you know, make this not your daddy's Christianity, right? We're hipper, we're cooler, we have better coffee, 
Uh, we preach better sermons. They're not so doctrinal. They're sort of like five ways to have a better marriage and five ways to succeed in life. This is sort of that model where the aim is relevance to culture, okay? Um, it tends to assume naively that the integrity of the faith is just to be assumed, you know? Like we don't have to, we don't have to fight for the doctrine because we just assume, you know, the faith is going to remain stable. We just need to update it to modern sensibilities. And obviously, that's probably a very naive assumption. So defensive against relevance to, you see how that sort of follows the first two categories in Niebuhr's. Um, third, purity from. Purity from culture. So here's how this is. So the first one was defensive against. You can see how that's sort of a fighter posture. Purity from is more of a separationist posture. It says, um, we don't need to worry about the culture. We don't need to try to reclaim any ground for Christ. Um, the church has no obligation other than to be itself. And that means a certain kind of disengagement from culture. So these people would highlight the church just needs to be the church. The church doesn't need to worry about relating to culture in any particular kind of a way. Um, so just be the church, exist as a distinct people in the world, stop worrying about how to be relevant to the culture or how to fight the culture or how to relate to the culture or how the gospel should connect or shouldn't connect to the culture. Our job is just to be the church. So purity from cultures rather than a defensive posture that's sort of trying to fight. This is more of a withdrawal kind of a posture. Okay. And then the fourth model which again, James Davison Hunter is doing the same thing. He saves the best for last. The fourth model is faithful presence within culture. Faithful presence within culture. Um, this is the one he prefers. This is what he's writing the book to sort of argue for. He's saying, hey, defensive against isn't ideal. Relevance to isn't ideal. Purity from isn't ideal. What we should aim for is faithful presence within. Okay. Um, I'm going to read um, Brad East's summary here of this paradigm. He says, in imitation of the incarnating God, so this kind of flows out of the incarnation is kind of Hunter's model, the church ought to dwell in the midst of the world. Wherever a particular people may be found, their culture is there with them. Christians ought to take up residence among them and thereby within their culture. So the idea here is, you know, hey, so the people, you know, you might work at a place and the people there are all employees of that place and your job is to be a faithful presence within that workplace culture. As a Christian, you're alongside them, working in the same place, serving in the same place, but what's unique about you is you're a Christian. So you might share the same sort of, you go to the birthday parties and you go to the barbecues and you might go to happy hour and you engage in the same sort of culture as the people you're working with, but you do it in a distinct way as a faithful Christian. So um, there's this model of, you know, faithful presence within. And man, if you're in a university, you should be a faithful presence there. If you're in a workplace, you should be a faithful presence there. If you're in a neighborhood, you should be a faithful presence there. Faithful presence within culture is the way for Christians and the church to relate to culture. Now, um, what do you, of those four, so defensive against, relevance to, purity from, faithful presence within, if you're trying to buy into Hunter's model, 
What do you like about faithful presence? What, what does that help to, how does that help us? Okay, yeah, it's that in the world but not of the world that Jesus talked about. Okay, it's trying to aim at that. What else? Okay, good. Good, so there's a healthy emphasis on common grace here. That, hey, in every human culture, there's some things that, are, that can point, that, that are, that are uh, common grace gifts, and we can start there and, uh, and celebrate those things. So that it does have a high understanding of common grace. What else? Okay, why? Okay. Okay. Good. Okay, good. So you're this is the one where yeah, you're act there's a there's a presence and an engagement that doesn't seem defensive and that actually can gain ground. Good. Okay, right. You're going to be rubbing shoulders with human beings, and that's going to create opportunities for evangelism. You can see how you being faithfully present in a place over time creates opportunities to share the gospel. What else? This is what? Oh, wow. That's a, just a, so yeah, this is what Jesus did. I like it. I like it. Yeah, he was, right? So think about how, you know, he's with the tax collectors and the sinners. He's present among them, but he's faithful. So yeah, that's a good, this is, you can see how this model is rooted in Jesus' life. Now, Okay, let's critique it, though. What might it not take enough credit for? What might it not uh, identify, this faithful presence model? Okay, good. It might not take seriously the places of antithesis or conflict between the gospel and the world. So let's just think about this. Let's just brainstorm together. Give me some spheres of life or some vocations or some things going on in your city where Christians actually should not be present. What? Okay, pride parades. Hard to have a faithful presence at the pride parade. What else? Drag queen story hour. What else? Yeah, yeah. So this is this is becoming real fraught in the education system because you're now mandated to do things that that as a Christian you should not do according to conscience. And so many sort of things that would have been like, oh, that's a vocation where Christians can be faithfully present. It's becoming more and more obvious. Hmm, might be hard to be faithful in those vocations, or at least the question is asked. Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. So 
Okay, good. So let's not make this a pronouns debate, but I, th- I hear what you're saying, which is there actually, there's still ways to be faithfully present. It might just be a little more complex than it has been. What are some, let's get back to what are some vocations where you can't be faithfully present as a Christian? You guys are just, you must all just think of very noble vocations. You guys have any drug dealers in this city? Hard to be a Christian drug dealer, right? Hard to be a Christian stripper. Hard to be a Christian pornographer. Hard to be a Christian slumlord, right? Hard to be a Christian mafia boss. You see what I'm saying? There, there are segments of society, maybe we don't think of them as vocations, and so maybe that's the problem with the question I'm asking. But there are, I mean, abortionists, right? Can you be an abortion doctor as a Christian? I hope not. Um, so there are some, there are some categories where it's just like you can't be faithfully present as a Christian in that space, okay? So that's the gap with Hunter's model is it assumes a very sterilized and sanguine view of the aspects of society that we're talking about. And as Justin pointed out, the challenge is, whereas in the past it might have been slumlord, stripper, pornographer, increasingly in very normal vocations, we're, we're getting pressed on, can we still be faithful Christians in this world? And the, the gap in James Davison Hunter's model is, it doesn't account for when Christians might need to disengage from a vocation or a workplace or a career because I can no longer be faithful there, okay? So it doesn't help us consider the ways our faith might require us to opt out. And even though some of these models, like you might not like Christ against culture as a model, but I think you would all say, but there are moments where we actually have to stand against things the culture is doing, right? Like where we need to say just a hard no, to certain aspects of culture. Yeah. Yes, that's certainly the challenge is purity within. And that's what he's get, that's what I'm getting at is he assumes by using the category of faithful presence, he assumes both of those things are always possible that you can be faithful and you can be present. What he doesn't do is what happens when one of those is compromised? When to be faithful I'm not invited to be present. Or when being present means I'm asked to be unfaithful. Now, maybe, you know, you guys mentioned sort of the pronoun debate, but I'm just saying, like, there are teachers in my church that just, like, they've, they've been threatened with getting fired from their jobs if they're not willing to do that. So if their conscience makes them say, like, hey, I just can't do that, they're, they're welcome to go be faithful somewhere else. They can't be faithfully present at that school anymore, okay? So I'm not just thinking about this, like, what does it mean for us? I'm just thinking, like, we're in a cultural moment where actually faithful presence is more complicated than it's ever been. So let me give you then the, 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 uh, the third model, and I'll do this one real quickly. This is Brad East's model. Brad East is a professor at Abilene Christian University in Texas. He's a, a pretty young scholar. He's younger than me, probably in his 30s. And um, he put this out just a couple weeks ago, and I found it really helpful Um, because I think it does answer some of the limitations and gaps of these other two models. Man, this, I'm going to knock this whole bucket of uh, markers over in a minute. All right, so let me me give you, he's going to give us four words, all right? And what Brad East wants to tell you is um, these four modes are overlapping with one another, and typically, they're all at work simultaneously. So what I like about 
what Brad East is doing is he's saying, actually, we need to learn how to do four things at once. There's four sort of moves we need to be able to make, and they're not mutually exclusive. We're going to be called to do them all at once. Let me give them to you, all right? Here they are. Resistance, that's the first one. See, I told you that was going to happen. Repentance. Reception. And reform. Okay? Now remember, we're talking about the church's relationship to culture. And so let me read you how he expresses each of these. Resistance, he says this, the church is always and everywhere called to resist injustice and idolatry wherever they are found. It does this whether or not it has any social power or political prestige. Even when the regime is friendly to Christians, the task of resistance still obtains. There's always going to be ways we have to resist the culture around us. Second, repentance. The church is called everywhere and always to repent of its sin. When the church, either corporately or in its individual members, finds itself in sin, it should need no external pressure to admit its faults, publicly and penitently. So what he's saying is, hey, one of the things that threatens the the gospel is just when the church doesn't repent. When people see the church covering up its abuses or its sins, unwilling to embrace and repent where it's failed. So the church always needs to repent because we, as the... uh, as the, as the paradox, the Christ and culture in paradox honored, right, we are all sinners. And so the fact that we're part of the church does not mean that we are always living as salt and light in the world. Sometimes it means that we're not living up to Christ's ideals and we need to repent and be honest about our sin. Third, reception. The church is called to receive from the world the many blessings bestowed upon it by God. This is the common grace idea that Sam was talking about. Um, the world that God created is good. And so we're always going to find things that we can receive and enjoy that God has given. All good is God's good. All beauty is God's beauty. Um, This does mean that, uh, you know, to use the analogy, like, you know, plunder the Egyptians, right? There's much good among Egypt that God has allowed us to enjoy. Um, And it means we can have a, a big view of common grace in all the areas in the world where we're going to be able to see goodness and beauty and truth that reflects God. And finally, reform. We are called to reform culture. We do that by preaching the gospel. The gospel speaks to heart, mind, body, and soul. Braddy says this, the gospel, in a word, reforms. It generates adjustment in the way things are. When and where the spirit moves, the proclamation of the gospel cuts a culture to the bone, and the culture is never the same ever after. It walks with a limp. Now, uh, so Brad East is telling you, we have to do all four of these at once. They happen simultaneously. There's moments, there's places where we have to resist. There's places where we need to repent, places where we can receive, and places where by proclaiming the gospel, we're called to reform the culture. Um, What do you like about this model? What do you not like about this model? It's, 
It acknowledges we have to fight, but not all the time in every arena. What else? Yeah. Right. Good. So you can see how to go back to the faithful presence within, you can see how this gives me a category for what happens when where I'm trying to be faithfully present, I no longer can be. Well, I can resist, right? Or I can reform. So maybe I need to run for school board and reform those policies, or maybe I need to opt out and find another career. But this gives me a category for that, whereas faithful presence creates a bind for me, right? So you can see how this gives us a little fuller picture of how we can and ought to relate to culture. Yeah. Yes. Right. Good. So this does create good conversations within the church about like, hey, which traditions do some of these things better than others, right? And how can we learn from them and appropriate that? Were you going to say something too? Yeah, I like that too. Yes, yes. And it, it embraces the fact that, yeah, when it, it brings repentance out of just the vertical of like we need to repent before the Lord, but also makes repentance missional, right? When people see a people who are humble and willing to acknowledge their sins, that's actually really good news for the gospel because they see, oh, you guys don't think you're right about everything. Like you're willing to acknowledge your sin. And again, I think that's very biblical. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I want to bring us to a conclusion here. Um, one of the things I like about this model and that Brad East says about this model is he feels like, and I think it's a valid critique, that both Hunter and Niebuhr have a uniquely American tint to them. And this model works in any culture and under any kind of government. Like you can see how in communist China, these four things still need to happen. They look a little different, right? So he writes... This applies when the church has no power and when the church has all of it. It pertains to Chalcedonian Christians in the Byzantine Empire, to Armenian Christians in the Ottoman Empire, and to Baptist Christians in the American Empire. The mission of the church is one and the same wherever the church finds itself, and the same goes for the church's engagement with culture. I think that's a, a wise observation, which is that this, these four moves can be made in any culture 
and they're not uniquely inflected sort of in an American context, right? It's very easy to think about faithful presence within in 2010 America before before all the woke stuff and before the Donald Trump election and before everything fell apart in COVID and before Black Lives Matter, right? Maybe faithful presence made sense back then. It's a little harder now. Uh, it's easy to think about Christ transforming culture when you're talking about 1950s America with Leave it to Beaver. A little, little more challenging to think about what it looks like now post-Obergefell, right? So what, what Brad East is saying is this model is applicable in a lot of different cultural contexts and a lot of different moments in history. And, and I like that because it seems broad. Now, uh, you know, I'm not here to tell you this is the right model. I just wanted you to be in the know on these three different paradigms because I think they help us stand back and ask, as we're going to talk about this afternoon, okay, as we think about engaging culture, what does it look like to appropriately resist? Where is repentance needed? Where can we receive and what can we reform? And then how do these various models sort of inform our thinking and application of our mission in culture, right? So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to turn it back over to Ben. I think we're going to do some group work now. So let me pray for us, and then we'll do some more work on this this afternoon. Father, thank you that um, you are Lord of all, Lord of everything, um, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so would you give us the kind of wisdom, the kind of discernment, the kind of intelligent reflection to learn from these various authors and these various models Um, to think deeply about what it means for us to engage the world around us, and to remember that you have called us to work for change, to bring your gospel to bear on people and on cultures in ways that changes them. And so help us think about what that looks like and be good and wise students and learners as we try to do that work faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.